This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. For sure, there was lots of days. I remember March was shitty. I remember not wanting to go out because it was a stormy day and just going out and doing laps and kind of rain. And yeah, I mean, I remember calling my buddy Joey and that day he's like, Greg, you know, like, I'm kind of signed up for this and you gotta keep going. And, and for sure there was some low points, but yeah, and, but I, I wanted it. This is Delivering Adventure. Welcome to the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we talk with Greg Hill about how we can make adventure more sustainable, mentally, physically, and environmentally. Greg is an athlete, guide, and filmmaker that specializes in backcountry ski touring. Greg's long list of accomplishments include climbing and descending over 2 million vertical feet on skis in a single year. That was in 2010. He's also won numerous randonnée ski races, set ski touring time and vertical feet climbed records, and he has also planted over 1 million trees. Greg Hill is a certified ACMG ski guide, Jordy, I believe you know Greg pretty well. Is that right? Yeah, Chris, uh, Greg and I uh, did a a number of training courses together in the past when he and I were going through our ski guide training uh, exams. And I also lived in Revelstoke for a number of years where Greg still resides. So yeah, we've, uh, we've known each other for quite a few years. Okay, that's awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear what Greg has to say. Let's bring him into the DA studio. Now, just a quick note for our listeners. This is the first of two parts, as it turned out that Greg had a lot to say. So today we've got Greg Hill on the show. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem, Jordy. It's exciting to help out and have a good chat with you. So where are you located right now? I'm sitting in my basement in Revelstoke, British Columbia. Beautiful sunny day, and I'm just midway through some uh, house renovations. It's called Reno Stoke to those that have lived here. I'm sure you remember that. Yep, I've been there. So tell us something uh, about yourself that most people don't know. You're you're fairly well known uh, through everything you've done, but uh, yeah, is there anything uh, you can throw out as a tidbit that's the the Greg that we don't know? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people wonder why. There's always the why, and I often wonder why. Um, but I think one of the reasons I started being more adventurous is that I was sort of the sixth child with some stepbrothers in there and the youngest. So, um, to be noticed in a family that size, you kind of had to start doing crazy things like what have you climbing trees or, you know, just, just being a little bit wilder than the rest. So you could be noticed. And I think that's sort of what got me onto this adventurous life is just, just being young and wanting to. Yeah, just be noticed by your older brothers and sisters. So, you know, who's the guy climbing that cliff? Oh, it's Greg. Oh, they actually know who I am, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think it probably all started just that classic 
thing that we're all looking for is acceptance. And uh, as a young kid, I wanted my brothers and sisters to a notice me because then they would maybe accept me. So that's why I started doing wild things. How how did you come to uh, to like what you're doing and uh, and get into this industry and uh, and be doing doing what you're doing? Where was your base? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned my family. I grew up in southern Quebec, right near the Vermont border in a town called Sutton. And we lived in the country. I mean, our nearest neighbor was a kilometer away. You know, we lived on either my my mom's was 80 acres or my dad's was like 300 acres. So I just had this forest in my backyard at all times to just go and play. And especially in those days when one wasn't allowed to watch TV, we didn't have, well, we had a video game thing, but we were only allowed maybe a half an hour. I can't remember what the rules were, but was a lot of time spent out there just running around the bush jungle running or what have you and um i think that's really where i got it we did go on family camping trips and stuff and then skiing was a big deal for our family we skied every year um i remember in grade three as i skied 60 days that year and i was super excited because i got 60 days of skiing in. but um i think one of the reasons i really took to skiing particularly is that I would often skip school and go skiing with my parents. And so that was just something we did. If it was 20 centimeters, we'd go and ski. And I think for me in a little bit is that it always feels like I'm skipping school. I'm just, I mean, I'm not taking life too seriously. I'm just enjoying it. And I think that's what makes skiing special, although it's very serious in the mountains and what have you. But there's this small percentage of me that always feels like I'm just skipping school and having a good time. Yeah, exactly. It's the getting but, away from uh, it all. Yeah, exactly. But no, I mean, for me, I adventure like we did. We camped, we canoed, we did all sorts of stuff. I mean, we canoed on the pond in front of my house too, but but skiing became special that way. And for me, the true my true mountain career kind of began with rock climbing. You know, I did a lot of peace skiing, but um, around 15, I started rock climbing at a gym out of my school or a wall. And uh, that was really kind of the gateway that got me really into mountains and adventure because rock climbing, I just, I loved it. I love the challenges. I love that, that it seemed like there was, it was endless. No matter how good you got, there was always more to progress. And I think that, that really captivated me. I was like, this is endless. I'm going to, sure, I'm climbing 510 now and this 511 is hard, but I know at some point I'll get that. And then it just keeps going. And, and yeah, just that kind of challenge slash reward was, is very obvious in climbing and failure and all that. So I think that climbing was definitely the gateway. Um, and it's, it's what kind of definitely was, got me passionate in the mountains. You know, I traveled after high school, I traveled around the States for six months climbing. Um, then I, tra- I was in Australia climbing and then I tried to go to university, but all I was doing was climbing. So really it was climbing that got me out. Cause eventually I was like, okay, I'm done with biology. I'm going to go and live in Canmore and ice climb next winter. And learn to climb mountains because mountains have ice so i should go to canmore so it kind of basically got started from there and kept going we do have icy mountains here in canmore yeah yeah i mean i climbed for from 16 or whatever it was 15 to 24 ish and then i dislocated my shoulder and um i was just young and climbing way too steep and climbing too hard without warming up as we do when we're young and and it was quite a moment because all of a sudden it was tough to trust my body to believe in my my skill because I couldn't trust that my shoulder would stay in. And, and I just started ski touring the year before at Sunshine and around around Banff. And then I was like, oh, maybe I could switch that because I could see that it had that same sort of challenge and then it had these great rewards. And 
And it was it was quite a moment because I lost a total passion of mine, although I still climb a bunch now, but I, I lost it for quite a few years because my shoulder, but I was able to, to direct it into this new passion that, that really was quite fortunate because um, I seem to have a lot of energy and it, it fit quite well for me. And it probably kept me off from free soloing and, and killing myself as a 24-year-old. So That's true. I, rec I recall a number of years ago, uh, you and I doing some guide training together when when uh, we're getting into the program with the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. Uh, but uh, tell us, uh, tell our listeners here what uh, made you want to become a guide. Where did that start? Well, I, we took a, my stepdad turned 50 and he wanted to go heli skiing out west. And then he, he looked at what heli skiing was all about and he realized that he probably liked backcountry skiing better. So we ended up, he said, if you could save up half the money for this trip, we'll go to Selkirk Mountain Experience and spend a week ski touring. Um, and and I, this is when I was at university and I saved up the money and we went and there's this incredible week of wild skiing up at Selkirk Mountain Experience. And, and I do remember looking at Rudy and totally blown away by the confidence he had guiding people in the mountains. And they had these newbies we were all from quebec and here we were in these wild mountains and, and he was taking us around safely and and i got a journal entry that i wrote about it that just was just kind of blown away by yeah everything he was doing and just his comfort and and um at the time i remember thinking there's no way i'm ever going to have the skills the knowledge or the comfort to do that and so it wasn't on my radar at all and then when I, when I was talking about, you know, starting to really get into ski touring after my shoulder dislocated, I started realizing in Whistler, I was, that's the year I was staying in Whistler, I was going out solo and skiing all sorts of things. And I, I realized that I had a lot of energy and a lot of drive, but I also realized that I was like, I knew nothing. So the first thing was trying to figure out how to learn something. And, you know, I took my avalanche level one professional course. So that was a week, but I, it felt, I don't know, it's very structured. It felt very much for like, becoming a ski patrol and I wanted to learn more about moving in the mountains because I figured that's what that's what I needed to learn and um, I ended up looking up the Canadian ski guide CSGA and got I, I took their first level one course just as an intro to learn more because I just needed to keep myself and my friends safe so I took that course and then I also spent a bunch of time um, at Rudy's for at Selkirk Mountain Experience for another like 20 days of just tail gunning up there trying to learn from him and I basically started taking these guides courses to learn mountain sense. And, and then that slowly started, you know, I was always taking people out, always guiding people um, just because I'm a bit of a domineering personality at times. So I was definitely guiding people and my mom would come out for two weeks every year and I'd, I'd guide them. And eventually I started realizing that I was finally getting to a point where I had enough comfort to start guiding people and kind of gaining that perspective of, wow, I'm kind of, you know, I'm comfortable enough to take these people out here and, and start enjoying the mountains with them. And, and it, it was a slow process for me because I was starting to really do those ski mountaineering races and I was doing a bunch of other things, but I also realized that I really was enjoying the guiding. So I, it was like a very slow process for me. I don't think the ACMG would let me take as long as I did. Um, but yeah, I really, right off the bat, my first interest in the guiding was just to learn. And I did the Canadian ski guide course. And then I, a couple of years later, I did the, uh, or I tried the assistance um, ski guide with the ACMG and I failed that. But it was really, it was all just a learning curve and just trying to develop my own mountain sense along the way. How did you get into guiding? <laughs> How did I get into guiding? 
I was uh, reverse it. Aaron. I was more. I was born more into the mountain park side of things with my grandfather being a park warden. And so I, I always knew it was an option and, and he encouraged my, my father and, and his brothers, my uncles to ski. Actually at one point um, they were living in Lake Louise. My grandfather's a park warden there and he gave them the opportunity to, to choose if they wanted to play hockey or ski. Cause those are the two Canadian sports and uh, in being in a place that has perpetual winter essentially. And, uh, they were quite surprised because they, they never got a choice usually. And uh, yeah. then he said, well, if you, if you ski, I'll pay for it. If you play hockey, it's on your own dime. So they all skied. <laughs> so my father became a, yeah. a ski racer and, uh, and actually represented Canada in the Grenoble Olympics in 68 and where Jean-Claude Keeley cleaned up anyways. Uh, but he was can at Canada's top downhiller at one point there. And so I kind of grew up mm -hmm. in, in the park system, national park system. My father worked for, for national parks in, ja in Jasper. And so I became a park warden, uh, knowing that it was uh, an option. So firefighting into being a ranger and then a park warden. And then uh, I told myself when I became a park warden that within a couple of years, I was going to be moving towards the rescue specialist side of things, which meant that you had to become a guide. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I moved into the guide courses from there. Yeah, good question. I hadn't relived that in a little while. So as a backcountry skier, you obviously have done a lot of that. Uh, we do have some listeners that probably aren't as familiar with backcountry skiing. So just, you know, from the from your perspective and, and somewhat from the layperson perspective, describe what that is, what what that entails. You know, everything from the gear to the planning to the safety to the... Yeah, talk us through a, a day of ski touring. Complex question. Yeah, I mean... Backcountry skiing is by far the easiest way to travel around the mountains because one, you kind of cross country ski your way up. So you're able to kind of wind your way up the mountains. And then once you're at the top of whatever objective you're going for, be it a mellow slope or a mountain top or whatever, the second you want to head back to your car, you get to slide down, which is phenomenal because <clears throat> most of my mountain stuff started off with the skiing and I loved the descent and then I started doing summer stuff and then you get to the top of something and you look down and you realize you've got hours of hiking down whereas in the winter you get to slide down but um but yeah backcountry skiing essentially that's what it is is you've got this incredible equipment that's evolved quite a bit during my time since 95 backcountry skiing um but basically the gear is like cross-country gear you put this skin on the bottom of your ski that it's like it sticks on there and, and it's basically like hair. If you rub your hair one way, it slides. If you rub it the other way, it grips. And you, so you put these pelts underneath your skis and they kind of allow you to kind of go on a mellow, mellow angle and, and, and cross country ski your way up and around the mountains. And then when you get to the top, the gear is amazing as it all converts. You pull off that pelt, you fold it up, you put it in your bag and you switch your bindings around and your boots also go from a walking boot into a ski boot. They convert just through a couple of clips and what have you. So then, You've gone up in this cross-country gear, you get to the top, you do all these conversions, and all of a sudden you're locked into a downhill setup. And it's this phenomenal conversion because once you're in your downhill setup, you just can ski fast and have fun. And, and it's really gotten to the point where the gear is. It's walking gear for the up and then converts to ski gear. And it's, it's really quite phenomenal. Um, there's a lot of layers to backcountry skiing because because you're walking on snow. So right off that kind of introduces all the snow hazards that come with winter, be it temperatures, you know, freezing cold or winds. And, but it also brings into avalanche hazards. So the whole time you have to be, you know, 
paying attention to the avalanche hazard. You have to have spent days or weeks just reading up on it, seeing what Avalanche Canada is saying, and just really keeping your finger on the pulse so that when you're out there, you understand what the snow layers are doing. And that kind of allows you to figure out your way up the safer way up the mountains. And it's just, for me, it's this, it's a very complex sport because you've got this physical side, which has got, you've got to get up the mountain, but then you've got a mental side, which is try to figure out how to do it safely because of those hazards I was just mentioning and cliffs and just group dynamics. You've got this all, you've got this other layer there. And then there's also the mountains are incredible in the winter with the way the sun is on them and the snow and the wind. And it's like, it's a very kind of, at peace place for me, although it's wild at times, I just really love being at kind of the mercy of whatever mother nature is going to throw at you. So there's just, there's just lots of different layers to it to me that makes it this incredible sport that I've dedicated my life to, to getting good at, and then just spending my time out there. I mean, then, yeah, then there's more gear. There's all your avalanche gear. There's all your, your first aid gear. It's, it's very multi-layered. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to help anybody that hasn't backcountry skied but just know that it's this, it's it's a very challenging sport because you've got to hike up the mountain but it's also very rewarding in many ways and, and when you finally point your tips down and you get to enjoy an untracked slope it'll it'll all make sense um because from the exterior it doesn't make sense at all you'll spend 90 percent of your day hiking up for probably 10 percent of your day going down and and from the outside, the math doesn't make any sense. But once you do it a few times, you'll recognize that it's kind of kind of pretty amazing. And if people were to go with a guide, as long as they have a, a basis for, you know, being a, a blue to maybe black diamond skier at the ski hill, uh, they, they can actually make a go of it, right? You know, actually, because the, they're capable of doing the walking part, they just don't really understand the, you know, how the equipment works or the, uh, the safety aspects of it but if you go with a guide that kind of gets taken care of for you and you you get to focus on just your own physical challenge at that point getting up the mountain yeah and and i mean the benefits of the guide is that they can help you with their technique and really make it the easiest easiest it can be although it's still gonna be hard we can make it much more smooth and, and easy um this past winter an old friend from 20 odd years ago emailed me and was like, Oh, I'd love to come out and try backcountry skiing. He'd never backcountry skied before. And it turned out he'd never really downhill skied much before. <laughs> but quickly we spent four days and within four days, somebody that was a total newbie. We got some incredible skiing. We summited Young's Peak and like the, the training that a guy goes through really can just help empower these people to go to places that they really like he'd never expected eric had never expected to get up there and and yeah it was just it's pretty amazing um the guiding thing's interesting i think because from a guide's perspective it's tough to really understand the benefits of a guide but about eight years ago we went to go caving in nakamu caves which are the caves in, in rogers pass here and we found we got Eric Defoe, who's like the most experienced caver there, and we got him to guide us. And for me, that was a really neat moment for me because it it gave me that perspective of what a guide does for his clients. And I literally like this was a crazy caving experience, you know, where you're going through this twelve inches and squeezing yourself and rolling over and crawling and 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 I would have been terrified on my own. But because we had Eric there, I was able to basically take all my worries and, and 
nerves for the day pat and just throw them away because i fully trusted his experience because i knew he's the most experienced person we could find and by by one for having him there it allowed the rest of us to just have a really easy great time non-stressful because we knew he knew what he was doing we let him make all the decisions and we we're able to really enjoy it more instead of say if we'd taken eric out of the picture and there was the four of us friends there would have been this whole like decision-making process, all these challenges that we wouldn't have really been able to overcome because none of us had experience and we would have not known what decision was right or what have you. But by bringing along the ex most experienced person, it was just this great moment for me where I was like, here, take it all. And I realized right then that I was like, well, that's what I guess I do for clients in the winter is they, they're able to just have the best day possible and to let all the decisions and everything be made. And they can just kind of embrace the moment much more than they could if they were trying to do it on their own. Although eventually you do want to empower them to be able to do it on their own, but there's this kind of this level, this, this area where you can, as a guide, you can just really help people. Yeah, we're guides, but we're also instructors. And so if people want that, we can start off by guiding them. And then we can, through our instructional capability, we can move them through the progression so they can actually go do this stuff on their own. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the most empowering is taking your clients and teaching them more and kind of increasing their level. So one, they're, they're clients and they're getting better on their own, but they're also become better partners for us out there as, as guides. Because I think especially now they were, although yes, we are the most experienced, I think the decision making is happening more as a group and we're being much more vocal about it just to one, to teach our clients more and also bring them into the decisions and just make sure that you know, we're doing it for them also and not just ourselves. Yeah, everybody's got to understand what's going on out there and we're kind of all in it together, even even if there is, there always has to be a leader in any group. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, we all have to have group discussions about risk, risk acceptance and, uh, and you know, just personal challenge and where, when you've hit the wall mm -hmm. and be, be upfront about that. Well, yeah, you kind of just triggered something that I think about a lot is the adventurers pact or something. I kind of feel like there is sometimes with people, this idea that when you have a guide or what have you, when you're in the mountains, that they're not going to be dangerous. And I think all of us should have a pact. Once you start adventuring, whatever level you're at, is that you should have this pact that you understand that things can go wrong and that you're, you're doing it for that gray zone for this bit of an unknown, but you should, we should also accept that there are consequences and, it's pretty easy to notice people who are a bit oblivious to it and they there's you know, oh i've got a guy we're gonna be safe and um to me it became quite clear i was on mount manislu the eighth highest peak in the world and we witnessed this avalanche that caught 30 people sleeping in their tents and quite a few people passed away and 12 people passed away that day but what i really what really hit home for me that day is that i felt like a lot of them had not understood that they're being risky and that they are taking taking risks. And I kind of feel like to me, I always clarify that like, if there's adventure, adventure has risk. And if there's risks, there's consequences, and we have to kind of accept them. As hard as it is on our family and everybody else, we you, you do have to accept that there's going to be risks in any adventure. It could be hard for for some people, though, to imagine that, because they don't, you know, first of all, they don't have any experience in that. And second of all, they don't they just can't imagine that something is going to happen. happen yeah, it always to them. happens to others, not to them. 
but no, I think, and then we're talking about the conversation with your clients. And I think that is great that we're at a point now where we're conversing a lot more about that and trying to make it clear to those, to them and ourselves that, that it can't happen to us. And a lot of the preparation that goes in, in behind the scenes to be prepared for that hopeful thing that never happens, the bad thing um, and the, the emergency event, but uh, that we as professionals are very, very prepared, trained constantly for it. And, but also hoping that we'll never actually have to pull those tools out. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And um, another misadventure of mine, <laughs> I had, a, I broke my leg in an avalanche in Pakistan and, and, and my group really didn't have the necessary first aid skills and stuff. I did, but I ended up being the guy help like trying to tell them how to put traction onto my leg. And it really made me realize how valuable it is to have partners and or guides, friends, what have you that have first aid and have taken courses and have kind of put more of those tools in their toolbox. Cause that, you know, I was at 20,000 feet, massive avalanche, broken leg. And I'm sitting there kind of doing first aid on myself, you know, and if, you know, you were talking about the guide, if there, if there had been another guide around or what have you, it would have been much easier to just have them do everything. <laughs> and along with that comes uh, the training and equipment, but also communications. It's really nice to be able to call out and let somebody else in the outside world know that you're having an issue and hopefully they can start to come your way. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of challenges and, uh, and hardship and, um, personal, personal hardship, uh, you've, you've done quite a bit, uh, over the years of pushing yourself and yeah, I just wanted to kind of move into that for, for a short bit here. Uh, tell us about your, uh, your world records and, uh, kind of that process of, of, uh, climbing a lot on your skis and then to getting to descend of course as well. Yeah. A lot of it doesn't make sense to me now. I can tell you that it made a lot of sense at the time, but as we change, things don't make sense. But yeah, for many years, I, when I came into backcountry skiing, there was kind of, I was right at a point where the gear was changing. So all of a sudden there was kind of these tech bindings that were being used more and those boots that worked with them that skied better and walked better and, and skis got a little lighter. So all of a sudden there was this change in gear and that change in gear kind of opened up that we could do more. Um, and because all of a sudden the gear was lighter and it worked better. And, and, and so this, what had been done to a point was incredible that, it, you know, the level was great. And, but yet all of a sudden with this new gear, there was sort of like, there was more potential. And I had spent years tree planting. It's how I paid for skiing for years is I tree plant and tree planting and you fixate on numbers. And so, so I started fixating on numbers with ski touring. And I remember, you know, my first 5,000 foot day, it was hard, it was challenging and it was as much as I could do. But then as I got better, as the gear got better and I got, I figured out how to walk better, skin better. I slowly was, did a 7,000 foot day. And then I remember doing a 10,000 foot day. And, and I started really obsessing about these numbers because to me, they quantified how much, how, how great my day was. You know, if you go out for 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters of powder skiing, that's an incredible day. And it was hard and challenging. And I kind of, for some reason along the way in my life, I started to really enjoy kind of digging deep and kind of seeing what I could do. And 
I think it was mostly due to tree planting because tree planting, you're out there to make money and every second counts. So I took that work ethic and took it to ski tour. And um, I remember Scott Davis had done a 20,000 foot day around Revelstoke. So when I first moved here, that was kind of like the benchmark. I'd heard of this 20,000 foot day and, and it was not within my grasp at all. And then as, as my, as my spent time on these skin tracks and got better and better, all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I think I can do 20,000 feet. And, um, you know, it was really fun. I went out and did a 20,000 foot day in, in the past. And I remember I actually changed parking lots cause I was trying to look at as many different places in the past that day. And it, it was just this great, amazing day out in the mountains. And I, I ended up speed touring 20,000 feet. And, you know, I remember at the end, I was on top of the dome glacier and I was like, you know what, I've hit 20, but I've still got energy. And so then and that kind of, I was like, oh, well, if 20 is possible, maybe I could do more. And so the I went tree planting that next year and all summer I was like, well, I did 20. I think I can do 30. And I sort of like would in the off season, I'd focus on my goal for the next winter. And then that winter I'd train up and I'd go for it. And so that the next winter I did 30,000 feet in a day, which, um, like I said, none of this makes sense now, but it really made sense at the time. But next time you're on an airplane, look out of the window, that's about 30,000 feet. And, um, somehow, you know, I did 15 runs on grizzly shoulder that day and, it was this crazy powder day. I had these huge skis on and I was just shredding and having a blast and then pushing myself. And it was sort of a 15 hour day. Um, and yeah. And I just kind of, I really got into this and part of it, part of it was probably to prove to my dad or my brother, you know, that I was doing something of value, something, of, you know, if I was doing something nobody had done before, then I must be at least excelling at what I'm doing. Cause I hadn't finished university. My brother was a multimillionaire, super successful, easily, easily compared to as an insecure younger brother. So for me, I just kind of wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't just wasting my life. And also that I was kind of, I'd found something that had made sense and that I could push at and that I really enjoyed. And um, so it kind of, it answered a couple things, you know, I, I overcame my insecurities. It helped me kind of, mm, I don't know, not stake my claim, but just help me progress the sport and just see what the potential was, my potential and the potential because everything I've done has been beaten now, which is amazing because the level just keeps getting better. But, but yeah, for probably eight years, I, I focused, 10 years, I focused pretty much on vertical, how much I could do in a day, how much I could do in a year, you know, and it was for a while, it was just about the day because I, I I wanted this year. I wanted to see how much I could do in a year to see my personal potential. But I definitely focused on the day because I realized that you have to max your days out to max a year out. And um, yeah, I, I ended up going to a, this race in Colorado that they kind of organized for me to set a new record. And it's a little vague. I at the time there was a bunch of articles that said I set a world record. But me and this got this guy Jimmy, I was in lead for the first seventeen hours and about. After 17 hours, some guy caught up to me and it was middle of the night and I was like, what the hell? And it was this guy, Jimmy and Jimmy and I had never really, we'd never met. And we spent the next six and a half hours skinning together and setting a record of 50,000 feet in a day up, um, which was like 35 laps of this ski hill or what have you. But, um, but yeah, it was really neat. Jimmy and I connected, we had these great chats, we pushed each other and then we set a record together and I've never seen him since. <laughs> but um, at the time, at the time, yeah, there were these bunch of articles that came out that said it was a world record. But a few years ago, I read something else that said maybe some European had done more. So whatever. In the end, it, it doesn't matter. In the end, for me, it was this kind of like I, 
I, like I said, each summer I'd dream about it. I went 20, uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, and then 50,000 feet in a day. And I mean, the focus it took, the training for that was definitely something that I don't have the energy for now, but it was just really neat to push to really see what I could do. And, you know, that was 23 and a half hours of nonstop activity um, with my wife and our six month old daughter at the bottom pit crewing for me. But, um, but yeah, I basically started to just see what I could do vertically. And, and, and I evolved this, there was this 2 million foot idea that when I did start doing my ski touring in 99, I was on black comb and we were at ski touring and I did 5,500 feet and just like tree planting, I was like, Oh, I'll do some more math. And I realized that 5,500 feet or 1700 meters, if you did that every day for the whole year would be 2 million feet. And that was 1999. Y2K was coming. You guys remember all the pressures and all the things about Y2K and well, it was year 2000. And although we're 22 years later, um, for me, there was this idea. I was like, wow, 2 million feet in the year 2000. That'd be so cool. And I didn't have any of the experience that I've just talked about. I was at the beginnings of my career and I, I, I didn't even come close. You know, I don't even know if I did 200,000 feet that year, but there was this idea. And so those days, those individual days were all in my mind. We're like, Oh yeah, I'm kind of trying to figure this out. And, um, then I spent a few years trying to do back to back big days. So I started to do 10,000 foot days just to see, cause I knew that if I was going to do 2 million feet, I needed to do a lot of 10,000 foot days. So, I ended up doing a million feet in a season in 2005 and the season ended until May 19th. So it ended up being like seven and a half months. So I was nowhere near what I needed for my 2 million feet dream, which I hadn't told anybody about. It was just kind of something in the back of my head. So eventually I did a bunch more 10,000 foot days. One year I did 80, 80, 10,000 foot days just to kind of get you consecutive days and really just drive it and see a lot of great skiing. And then I realized I was finally, I was like, okay, I'm getting close. And, I kept on being chicken because committing to a year long challenge with very little sponsorship and very little money, it didn't really make any sense, but it was kind of a dream that had been festering for not eight years, 2008, but I didn't do it in 2008. Then 2009 came and I remember dreaming that I was going to do it that year. And then I chickened out. And then finally, December, 2009, I was like, okay, I think it's time. I, I don't have any money saved up. I don't really have any sponsorship for this, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to ski 2 million feet in the year 2010. And I literally hadn't told anybody. I told my wife that December, you know, it wasn't, I've never liked talking about things until I've done them. I think the importance is, is such a personal thing that I just never wanted to put that pressure on. So finally, 2010, I just started this little challenge. It's right here. My old watch. You can see it. It's dead. Doesn't mean anything now, but for that entire year, I I watched a little number on there, and I just focused on trying to do that 5,500 feet a day every day, and just trying to do two million feet. And it, and it was the ultimate goal. It was ten years of dreaming about it, and it really was like it was something I've been wanting to do forever, and it, it had a lot of value. And but I really wanted to adventure because to me, the adventure is key. Um, and that's what that year was. It was like the best year of adventure I'll ever have. Um, you know, I skied all around the States, mostly Canada. We went up to the Yukon, which was a waste of a month. We, I went, and then I went and spent four months in Chile and Argentina with my family skiing. And it was this incredible year where I summited 77 mountains. I did tons of firsts for myself that I'd never skied. And, and it was just like this incredible year of adventure and kind of learned, earned me the nickname two mill hill. And 
midway through, I did finally find some sponsorship money to help with it. I still lost, I still ended up going into debt, I'm sure from at least 20 grand in debt, but when you got passions, you kind of got to follow it. But yeah, two so basically 2010, I, I did 2 million feet of uphill climbing to get 2 million feet of skiing down. And yeah, it was the best year of my life for sure. It was, uh, you know, my wife doesn't like talking about it too much, but it was incredible. <laughs> um, there are always sacrifices. There are sacrifices for sure. It, yeah, there's lots of sacrifices. I'll just quickly touch on that. But for sure, you know, my wife, you know, I did the best I could, but as much as I could do, I was gone for a month to the Yukon or what have you. And, you know, I would say there's a great woman behind every man. And, and for sure, I've got some great support there. But uh, how, how did you motivate yourself? Yeah, to me, the motivation comes from the fact that I'm not doing these goals for anybody but myself. And so it's like, you know, I wasn't going out to make money. I wasn't going to, I was going out to prove something to myself and, and I needed, and that was enough because it was basically came from me, I think. And that, and that helps me motivate for sure. There was lots of days. I remember March was shitty. I remember not wanting to go out cause it was a stormy day and just going out and doing laps and kind of rain or strain or whatever you call it. And yeah, I mean, I remember calling, my buddy Joey and that day he's like, Greg, you know, like you kind of signed up for this and you got to keep going. And, and for sure there was some low points, but I think because the goal was mine and, and I, and I was never too far away from it. I think at one point I fell, but it's two weeks, about 50,000 feet behind, but it was always somewhat tangible. Um, but yeah. And, but I, I wanted it. Right. I dreamt about it for 10 years, that desire for most of my goals, the desire builds up for quite a while so that once I'm finally actually activating them, I've, there's been all this time of focus and dreaming that then give me the energy and the drive to keep going with it. But to me, that's a huge part of any goal is, is the time before the mental training the, to build that desire. You know, it's much like if I was going to go run a marathon, I'd start daydreaming about it, I'd start training for it, but there, there would be months of preparation wanting that end goal. And it's just kind of the same thing with this. Was, I'd spent years dreaming about it, 10 years, and, and, and that desire was there. Oh, yeah, and there was some really tough moments. But I kind of, <clears throat> I guess acceptance is what, I was, what, what it's all about. Once, once I've started a challenge and I've dreamt about it and I've actually started it. I've accepted that there's going to be some hardships and, and that by accepting it, I smile through these things because I've, I've signed up for them. Um, I don't sign up for things I don't want to do, but I think accepting that it's going to be hard acceptance of a lot of things really helps free yourself to it. Well, I think that laid it out uh, quite nicely for, for everybody. Thanks. Yeah, I just think it's easy. It's just like I had a challenge in, in the spearhead in the spring here and we filmed it, but it's kind of boring for the filmers because Andrew and I both knew the challenge was going to be about 20 hours. We both accepted the hardships. We didn't have, we just kind of hit this point of acceptance and drive that doesn't go down because we're fully invested and we know what it's going to be like. And it's kind of boring for the filmers because we didn't, we didn't crash. We didn't go low. We just kind of Mm, and that's kind of sucks <laughs> great challenge though but really it is it's every it's it's just yeah i guess when you when you see people struggling through things it's because they haven't accepted it and they're still trying to fight 
with acceptance. And if you can just accept that it's going to be shitty, it's a lot easier to deal with the shittiness. Yeah. And it's not like you just walked out the door and decided, okay, I'm doing 2 million this year kind of thing starting now, right? This is a whole process of planning and preparation and trial and tribulation, you know, to, to, uh, to get to that point where you said, okay, now it's, now it's time to actually pull the trigger on this. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of, a lot of that training, mental training to get to that point. It doesn't, you can't, you know, say I want to run a hundred, hundred kilometers, which I've never done. It's going to take a while to build that all up and get prepared for it and get to the point where you're ready and then you're accepting it and then trying it, you know, but I'm not just going to do a hundred kilometers tomorrow. I wouldn't do well. Or if you did, if you did, you just wouldn't walk for a few days after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to pause here for now so that we can recap some of the excellent points that Greg has made so far. We'll pick up the rest of Greg's conversation in our next episode. If you are looking to learn more about Greg in the meantime, please visit his website, greghill.ca, not .com. That's greghill.ca. Okay, Jordy, when it comes to making sure that adventure is sustainable, what were some of your key takeaways or things that jumped out at you from what Greg had to say so far? Well, Chris, uh, one thing uh, we're, we're talking about sustainability here uh, and that's, you know, environmental stewardship. Absolutely. Um, is a huge part of that. And that's a big uh, part of what Greg does, but there's also all these other ways that we need to be sustainable in our, in our careers as guides, instructors, trainers, teachers, coaches, and, uh, and that's mental, emotional, physical, um, including the environment, uh, um, as well as we talked about not wasting time, um, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a big one, right? Because we all have limited time and that needs to be sustainable. And then in our relationships, we need to uh, make all of this uh, what we do sustainable. And so um, I, think, I think Greg, you know, by, by being a leader in uh, environmental sustainability. Um, he's also helping us, um, all pay more attention to these other sides of things in our industries that need to be sustainable. And then in terms of time, really the sustainability piece that I've already alluded to on that, uh, you know, doing things like, like enlisting the help of someone else. And that's where we come in as, as guides and professionals, uh, to bring people through these adventures and deliver adventure to them. And hiring a professional guide really helps to make the most of a client's valuable time. Um, and so we can, we can really facilitate them having a great adventure and having really good use of their time. I've guided clients from all over the world and sometimes they're, you know, they, they just come in and they just want to hit the highlights and then off they go to whatever they're next doing in their life. And so uh, we can do that by making the most out of their time spent. Uh, Greg referenced, for example, being in a cave near Rogers Pass with a caving guide. And so Greg is a guide himself, but he also got huge value out of that by having someone help reduce decision makings, take him into a less familiar environment, um, even though he's very good when he's outside the cave um, on skis, uh, not necessarily so much inside the cave. And I've experienced this myself too. Uh, I think I've said this before, the idea of sea kayaking. I'm not you know, a huge ocean person and tides go up and down and, uh, and I don't always know what's going on with that. So I've hired 
sea kayaking guides. And I got amazing value out of that for my time spent. Jody, those are two really good points. I'm going to pick up on something that you uh, mentioned uh, to start with there about relationships. And one of the things that Greg uh, mentioned that that really struck me is the idea of that adventurer's pack where everyone involved accepts that things can go wrong. And often when we set out to do our, our trips, you know, our activities, we aren't thinking about how things can go wrong and how we might uh, want to react uh, to that after the fact. And so the point that um, Greg was making is that if you can have that adventurer's pack beforehand where you accept and visualize and take some responsibility yourself uh, when things go wrong, that you're not necessarily going to you know, lash out and blame others and you are getting yourself ready so that you're prepared to deal with those situations beforehand, they can take pressure off of the relationships that you have with the other people that you're with should things start to go uh, sideways. There were three other points that I just wanted to highlight here that I thought were really good. One was uh, setting attainable goals. And so if we set goals that are, are way beyond what we can actually achieve, uh, we're not going to get there. And so Greg worked up to 2 million vertical feet. Uh, he didn't say next year I'm going to do it. It was a two, three-year plan uh, to get there. Uh, he also tracked his progress, which helped to keep him motivated. It's important to look back at what you've done instead of always looking forward. So he was able to track his successes uh, in the past, which helped to keep him motivated to keep pushing forward. And that last point I just wanted to, to bring up was acknowledging that there will be a period of suffering or discomfort. And, it, and I think he, he phrased it as being that the idea of accepting that it's going to be shitty for a certain amount of time, but that time isn't going to be infinite. You know, the example that you can use is if, you know, if you have to climb a thousand feet, you know, at the start of your start of your trip, well, that's going to take you about an hour. And so for that hour, uh, it's going to be a little bit tougher going and you're going to have to put your head down. But you know that once that hour has elapsed, things are things are going to get better. And so being able to recognize that and accept that that period of, of suffering or discomfort or challenge isn't infinite. It's a short amount of time. Now, let's turn it over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? What stood out to you? You can share your thoughts, stories, or insights with us via our social media feeds or by emailing us. You can find all of our contact information at deliveringadventure.com. We have also posted our contact info in the show notes, as well as a link to Greg's website. Also, please don't forget to follow or subscribe to this podcast through your favorite streaming service. And if you can, please share this with your like-minded friends. This is how you can help to make this podcast sustainable. In our next episode, we hear more from Greg on how you can be more physically and environmentally sustainable. Thanks for listening.